welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and this week we're talking about the Boston Police Department's push to buy new software that will let it monitor social media activity for evidence of possible threats to public safety at a cost of up to $1.4 million. A few days ago, the Boston City Council held a hearing where this proposal was discussed at length, with some city councilors saying they had deep misgivings and others saying it seemed like an appropriate use of time and money. One of the sharpest critics who testified at that hearing was Cade Crockford, director of the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts. I talked to Crockford at WGBH's Brighton Studios just an hour or two after the hearing wrapped up about the BPD's proposal and the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, the body that would use the software if it's purchased. Take a listen. Listen again, but yeah, it's, um, so, so I'll say, do you? What, uh, what's yours? Is it an ACLU one? So she talks about um, finance issues and I talk about master balance. Called humorless queers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great concept. Yeah. Um, how often do you try to do it? Like you're saying, you know, we try to do it once every couple weeks, yeah. but we basically stopped doing it for like five months, and now we're trying to get back into it. So. It's really hard. Yeah. It seems like it's so. At least in my experience, it seems like so. It's yeah. so easy when you start out, yeah. and then if you if you're doing anything else, I, know. You know, I mean, it's like it could be its own job. Totally. You know? totally. For some people, it is. Yeah. Well. Um, what I want to ask you at the outset is I I looked around the room as that Boston City Council hearing on this proposal was going on, and I saw, I'm going to say around three times, you sort of smile ruefully and shake your head mm. after either a representative of the police department or uh, another person testifying on behalf of this uh, possible acquisition made a particular point. Do you remember what it was that you were shaking your head in regret or disbelief at? Oh, there were a lot of things. Um, one of them was the claim that the ACLU uh, was somehow involved in the drafting of the Boston Regional Intelligence Center's privacy policy, which is not true. All right. Let's give any listeners who might not be up to speed on what brick, as they call it, actually is uh, a, a primer on what we're talking about here. How does the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, which is at the core of what we're talking about here when it comes to social media surveillance. How does it relate to the Boston Police Department? So BRIC is one of 70-plus fusion centers nationwide. Fusion centers were created in the wake of 9-11 by the newly then, create, then newly created Department of Homeland Security. Um, they are still funded with Department of Homeland Security money. In fact, the hearing was about approving this $14 million of Department of Homeland Security grant money, um, somewhere in the vicinity of 3 or $4 million of which is going directly to the brick. So the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, it's basically like other fusion centers across the country, a place where state and local law enforcement um, become spies or intelligence officers. You know, they would call themselves that or analysts. Um, we sort of think that they're spies. Uh, and they work with federal law enforcement and oftentimes even members of private security or private industry um, to share what they call threat information. Uh, these institutions were initially developed to respond to the recommendation in the 9-11 Commission report, which said that one of the failures that led to 9-11 was a failure to so-called connect the dots. So this is what they are supposed to do. Despite that, 
in the years since these institutions have been created, there hasn't been one single instance in which they've stopped a terrorist attack. Um, the they're not particularly good at their jobs. Um, I see oh, you there's talk, a, there's like ahead. eighty different things yeah. that I want to jump yeah, in yeah. on uh, and ask about. But so just to to get back to where we started talking about Brick, you reject the suggestion that was made at the hearing on on Monday that the ACLU played a role in crafting the privacy policy of the Boston area brick, right? That's right. Okay, so what, what, if anything, was the person talking about that led to that claim? Is there a core, a germ of truth in there that they misrepresented, or, or what was going on? Well, so he, David Carabin, who's the director of the brick, is the man who made this statement. And he later, when he was pressed on this question, clarified that he meant that this guy who used to work for the National ACLU, whose name is Mike German, um, was involved on some level in helping them think through their privacy policy. I reached out to Mike. I know Mike very well. Um, He's a great guy. He, as I said in the hearing, is a former FBI agent himself who, after working undercover for the FBI for many years uh, trying to dismantle white supremacist uh, terrorist groups, um, came to work for the ACLU. And so I was particularly offended that Mike's name would be invoked as someone who uh, supports the brick privacy policy because I know for a fact that Mike does not support that policy. Um, and part of the reason for Mike's refusal to support a policy like the one that Brick has is that Brick's policy does not include what's called a criminal predicate requirement. And this was the other thing that I was shaking my head about in the hearing because I also heard, uh, I believe it was Carabin, say that their policy includes a criminal predicate requirement. And that is just not true. And in layperson-friendly terms, what is a criminal predicate requirement? So a criminal predicate requirement basically says that the police cannot collect information about you or spy on you or investigate you unless they have a reason to believe that you are involved in criminal activity. It sounds very obvious, frankly, that the police shouldn't be spying on right. or collecting information about you if they don't have a suspicion that you're involved in a crime. Um, and so Carabin was asserting that they do have that criminal predicate requirement in the policy. It's not there. It's just not there. It's so, not there. By the way, can can I go look this Absolutely. up online? Absolutely, I will and send you the language. Can, okay, yeah. fabulous, and we can post it. So it's yeah. just not there. No, it's and and, that, and the reason that I reacted so viscerate, you know, vocifer- or viscerally and vociferously. Viscer- yes, viscerally. Thank you. In the meeting is because this is one of our primary objections to the post nine eleven security state in the U.S., of which the brick is a prime example. Um, they don't require criminal predicates anymore. In fact. A little history lesson. In the 1960s and 70s, um, there were lots of accountability processes. This country went through a public uh, truth and accountability process to some degree about the FBI's operations known as COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, spying on the black left, spying on the anti-war left, spying on the Black Panthers, on the Students for Democratic Society, et cetera, et cetera, infiltrating those groups, killing some of their members, including Fred Hampton, who was assassinated on December 4th, actually. Um, And after all of that stuff started to come out, in part through the church committee hearings in Congress, um, there was a guy who was appointed the attorney general by uh, Gerald Ford, actually, so not a very progressive guy, um, who instituted some requirements for the first time called the levy guidelines that said that FBI officials had to have a criminal predicate before investigating someone. 
that had never happened before. And it was a direct response to the uh, overreach of the 1950s and 60s with COINTELPRO. After 9-11, that was wiped away. One of the first things that Ashcroft did as attorney general under Bush was institute new attorney general guidelines that said the criminal predicate is gone. You no longer need to suspect someone of a crime in order to start investigating them. And that was at the federal level, but that devolution of democratic practice in law enforcement trickled down to the state and local level. So it was particularly frustrating for me to hear David Caravan, who is a representative of the national security state at the local level, telling the public something that is not only blatantly false about their policy, but is actively dangerous because it so deeply misrepresents the state we're in. Why do you think he did not accurately represent the requirements that they have for monitoring? I think you'd have to ask him. Yeah. I mean, he's not going to come here and talk to you, is my guess. But He's probably not. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I, it could be that he was saying that he meant to say that there was a criminal predicate if they wanted to um, go inside your house and rifle through your papers. I mean, they'd need to get a warrant for that. But it certainly sounded like he was saying, no, we have a criminal predicate requirement in our privacy policy at the brick, and that's just not true. All right, let's talk about what the BPD wants to know. By the way, did we ever, I, I can't remember, there's so much good, dense stuff that you just ran through. Did we ever uh, explain to people what the connection between the brick and the BPD is? The, the brick is based at the BPD, right? Yes. And the BPD is, uh, what's the right way to put it? The, the, what is it, presiding authority, governing authority? Help me out. Well, this is part of the problem with fusion centers, frankly, and, and Counselor Tito Jackson asked this question directly to Superintendent Paul Fitzgerald, who is David Carabin's boss and um, oversees the fusion center. He said, who's responsible for this? Who actually controls Brick? And, you know, Paul Fitzgerald basically said, me, I'm responsible. Um, he works at the Boston Police Department. But that answer, which seemed really short and obvious, has actually been much more complicated in terms of holding the brick accountable for its activities um, that are largely paid for with Boston taxpayer dollars. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that when we started looking into fusion centers in Massachusetts at, at the ACLU here in Boston, it became immediately apparent to us that there were some places where people who worked for either fusion centers or what are called joint terrorism task force operations, and that's where state and local police get deputized as federal agents and they work alongside the FBI on um, terrorism investigations, um, that some folks who are deputized as FBI or work at fusion centers actually have security clearance that supersedes the level of their boss. And so there were circumstances in which, and, and I don't know if this happened exactly at the brick, but I know it's happened in other places nationwide at fusion centers, circumstances in which lower level intelligence analysts could not tell the commissioner or the chief of police certain information about what they were doing on taxpayer, on the local taxpayer's dime because they had a higher security clearance. So this is, you know, we do get into some sort of weedy, murky areas. Bureaucratic lines of authority Exactly, kind of stuff, in yeah. terms of who's really in charge, right? All right, so how did you learn about this proposal on the part of the BPD and the BRIC to get new social media monitoring software? How did you find out about it? I found out about it when a Herald reporter emailed me the, the request for proposals. Um, must have been six or eight weeks ago. Um, and that's troubling. You know, one of the things that David Carabin and Paul Fitzgerald said today, in, or rather on Monday at the meeting, is that they care about transparency. They are committed to transparency. Well, 
Frankly, this never would have been a subject of conversation at this meeting had it not been for the Herald reporter finding the RFP, sending it to me, and then me, frankly, being a pain in the butt and making a big problem for the BPD all over the city um, by getting our supporters at the ACLU involved, by talking to the press about it. You know, there was a Globe reporter who picked up this story finally uh, a couple weeks ago, and if it hadn't been for her reporting on this issue, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So, you know, it's a little difficult. Again, you know, that might have been another one of the moments where I was shaking my head and kind of like, Could oh, be. Jesus, because that's really, you know, not a fair representation of what happened. <laughs> All right. I will confess to you, and my guess is you're not going to like this, that my initial thought pattern when I learned about this this monitoring proposal, I, I am one of those people, and I'm sure you've heard this from many other people, uh, who, who kind of went along these lines. Well, that sounds kind of troubling, and I don't know if I like the idea of more surveillance, but on the other hand, everything that I tweet out as an individual is kind of out there for people to see. I, I am, I think, sort of moderate in my Facebook privacy settings, but I kind of have felt for years like we in the public have, have become too used to thinking of social media as a genuine public sphere as opposed to a pseudo public sphere run by for-profit private corporations. We've opted in. We are choosing to make our thoughts on a wide range of things public. We're choosing to share photos or whatever. Um, if, as the Boston police kept insisting today, they're only going, they would only be looking at publicly available material with this enhanced monitoring software they're talking about getting, it didn't seem as troubling to me as some other encroachments on free speech. Have you heard that from other people? And if so, even if you haven't, what am I getting wrong in, in sort of thinking out loud the way I just did? Well, I mean, there are certainly a lot of threats to free speech right now. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily argue with you that this is perhaps the worst of them all. You know, I'd say that probably arresting journalists is worse than this. But but I, I don't think we should get into Were you referring the kind to of, the Canadian journalist yeah. who was detained at the U.S. border, yeah. right, going to cover the Standing Rock exactly. protests? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there are real there are other issues, certainly, and other issues related to privacy and digital By the way, issues. It, it, so, so forget my, my stupid creation of a, a hierarchy of, of concern, because that wasn't what I was trying to focus on. I was trying to more highlight that I think for a lot of people, there is an assumption that if you're if you're posting on Twitter or Facebook, you're deciding to put yourself out there. So what's wrong with law enforcement keeping, you know, keeping tabs in some sort of systematic way of what we are saying. As I say that, I, I am starting to creep myself out a little bit, but that's that was my initial reaction. So Right. So a couple things. First of all, there are a lot of people who don't trust the police. Um, if you're a dissident, if you have been involved in political movements that challenge wars or major corporations, you probably don't trust the police for good reason, because they've been spying on you and feeding information about what you're doing to your opponents. Um, and, and police have done that forever. I mean, you know, this is not just an issue with the Boston Police Department. Uh, every police department worth its salt has had a red squad for the past 60 years, right? And that's the case here in Boston now, too. They might not have a dedicated squad, but there are certainly people at Brick, I'm sure, I would bet, you know, a million dollars about this, who are looking into the activities of people who are engaged in protests. So that's one thing. By the way, this is probably a good point for you to remind everyone who's listening of the work that you guys did bringing to light some 
brick-based uh, surveillance of people who we don't think of as threats to public safety. Just, That's can right. Can you just yeah. recap what you did in 2012? Threats to U.S. wars, frankly. So these were uh, folks who were protesting the Iraq War, Code Pink, Veterans for Peace. They were, um, we learned through a public records lawsuit against the Boston Police Department, documented as, quote, extremists in Boston Police so-called intelligence reports. Um, these reports were marked with things like home sec domestic, whatever that means. Um, as, you know, I read that as these people are homeland security threats. Yeah, um, homegrown, and, right. Right, and they certainly weren't and aren't. Um, these people have never hurt anybody. You know, they were having standouts and meetings at churches in JP to talk about wars. Now, critical to note about that problem is that the policies that were in place when we published that report, have not changed. In fact, David Carabin said that at the meeting on Monday. That this is David Carabin, the head of the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. Sorry. Right. The same exact policies that allowed that kind of abuse to happen are in in in, um, in effect today. What are the policies that allowed that abuse? To, by the way, there's so many fascinating you know avenues yeah. to go down here. I feel like I keep wanting to go in one direction, and <laughs> oh, we yeah. deviate and deviate again. But what are the policies that are still in place? Well, so the... Pr- the governing policy is this Boston Regional Intelligence Center privacy policy. And that's online. The ACLU, we got it through our public records lawsuit as a part of this um, report that we wrote a few years ago. And you can look it up. You can read it yourself. And that is the policy that, again, does not require them to have any sort of suspicion that you're involved in a crime before collecting information about you, building a dossier, et cetera. We're back so, to no criminal predicate right, here. Exactly. So dissidents are one group of people who may be concerned about this. Black people are another group of people who may be concerned about this. There's a guy in New York City named Jelani Henry. He was a victim of an NYPD and um, New York Manhattan DA office, not Manhattan, Harlem, uh, district attorney's office, essentially witch trial, which revolved around his social media postings. Now, you hear... um, Members of the Boston Police Department, like Evans the other day, Commissioner Evans, who said actually on Jim Browdy's show that they wanted to use this social media monitoring um, program to go after gangs. This raises a red flag for us at the ACLU because while we do not want people getting killed in gang violence, clearly, we also have real questions about how the Boston Police Department determines that someone is in a gang. Um, is it because you're born in a certain in a certain neighborhood and you stand on a certain street corner or your cousin has been in trouble with the law before? Um, the actual way by which the BPD designates that someone is a suspected gang member or is a gang member is pretty shady and doesn't require either a criminal predicate. Um, can be based on hearsay, the clothes someone's wearing. So when we think about That, in addition to what we know about how black communities have been policed in Boston on the street, which is to say our black, brown, and targeted report based on Boston stop and frisk data, which showed that the Boston Police Department stops black people um, at way higher rates than white people, even when you control for crime. Um, We worry about the online over-policing of the same communities. So back to New York, this young man, Jelani Henry, he was arrested, charged with murder, And the evidence, quote unquote, that was marshaled against him was Facebook posts, Facebook likes, and photographs of him with people who had been convicted of other crimes in New York City. He didn't didn't kill anybody. He sat in Rikers Jail, the notorious Rikers Jail, for 19 months, nine of which he was in solitary confinement before he finally got bailed out and the prosecutors dropped the charges. They almost ruined his life. Um, And it was based off of some, you know, Facebook gang prosecution. 
So we actually do have to be very careful about people who are already subject to police scrutiny. And, you know, that's not okay being subject to more police scrutiny online um, because of a program like this. And then obviously, you know, the issue of criticizing the police department. You know, you're a journalist, right? You want to feel like you can say whatever you want about people in power. You know, it's your job to hold them accountable, right? Um, we yeah. rely on you to do that, actually, and I thank you for doing it. Um, that's going to be more difficult to do if you're afraid that, you know, people who have the power to pull you over when you're on the way home from a party late at night on Christmas Eve uh, might be reading your Facebook post or your Twitter post. And finally, to the point about the privacy issue, I have a lot of problems with the claim that, you know, because we're putting things on the Internet, we shouldn't worry about whether the police want to look at it. Even if you're not one of those groups or a Muslim, right, who may be targeted because you said that you don't like U.S. foreign policy. Oh, so now you're a terrorist in the eyes of the BPD. Maybe. Who knows? You could be Muslim, dissident, a black person in Dorchester who doesn't want to be associated with gang stuff but is by virtue of, you know, your circumstances in the eyes of the BPD. Put all that aside for a minute. Just say you're like a normal, regular white guy. You have the right to, I shouldn't have said normal. You're just a white guy in Boston. <laughs> I'll take normal. That's... Um, <laughs> you have the right to demand the public policy that you want to see in your own city, right? So, yes, it's true that the Boston Police Department may have the legal authority under current statutes and constitutional precedent to do this program. Does that mean that the people of Boston think they should? Uh, given the reaction at the city council meeting, I would say the answer is no. At least the people who showed up to testify and tell city councilors what they thought about it. So, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Um, you made an interesting comparison in an online post, I think, um, talking about, quote-unquote, real-life or real-world policing, you know, surveillance involving sitting in front of a home, watching people that a, a cop could legally engage in. That's right. Uh, you put it much more compellingly than I just did. But saying this, is, this would be legal, but we wouldn't find it acceptable. What was the scenario that you were— so just imagine a cop parks outside your house 24 hours a day and takes pictures of every single person who goes in and every person who leaves, documents who they're with, what they're wearing, time of day, takes pictures of their license plates, puts all of that information in a centralized dossier about you, and then links that to centralized dossiers about everyone you know. And then that information is shared with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Trump's FBI, by the way, and Department of Homeland Security. That might be totally legal. But I think people in Boston would find it completely unacceptable unless that police officer who's sitting outside your house documenting everything you're doing and coming where you're coming and going had a really good reason to do that. So, again, you know, I, I don't want to make it seem like the ACLU thinks that the police shouldn't be able to investigate crimes. That's clearly not what we're saying. If somebody calls the police and says, hey, I just saw somebody threatening to do something violent on Twitter, by all means, go look at the tweet, investigate, see what's going on. But the point is that this dragnet surveillance capability that has really robust um, technical features that are, go well beyond someone just looking at Twitter.com, um, that raises a whole new set of questions about the relationship between the government, the police, and the people in a free society. And, you know, I would like to live in a free society. So, Can you explain briefly how these programs work because I, I i may lack the technical acumen to get it but what are we talking about here in terms of uh, my assumption is that you've seen some of these products that are out there and maybe taking them for a spin i don't know if you can do that or not without a license but how do these things work exactly 
Well, we're not sure exactly what kind of technology the BPD wants to buy, um, but we know because of the request for proposals that they put out, the kind of features that they're looking for in a system like this. So a couple of them. They want the ability to build a dossier of an individual across social media platforms. So automatically, you know, brick official opens up his or her computer in the morning, clicks on Adam Riley, up pops everything you've said on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all of the, your most recent locations mapped, analyzed in a way that enables the officer to see basically everything you've been thinking about and doing for the past 24 hours. When you say mapped, are we talking about, location. for example, if, okay, yeah, so I post location. one thing at work, post another thing right. during my commute home, got it. Yeah, so actually draw a map of, you know, this is where Adam was all day based on, you know, these uh, social media platforms that collect location information through our smartphones, right? Imagine that for one day. Now imagine it for a year. Now imagine it for 10 years. Um, this becomes a huge quantity of information about people. Another thing that wasn't mentioned at all, that hasn't been mentioned in much of the coverage either, it wasn't mentioned during the hearing rather, is that the BPD seeks the ability to manage multiple covert online identities. So, you know, when David Carabin, who's the head of the BRIC, represented to the city council that all of this information is public, you know, you don't have to worry, we're not going to be going behind into people's direct messages or Facebook messages, we're just looking at what they present publicly. That's not exactly true, because if the Boston Police Department develops a covert profile, maybe designed especially for you, Adam, then you're going to think, wow, this person seems really cool. They have all of my same interests, they like all my posts, I'm going to be friends with them and let them into my private network so that they can see everything I'm doing, not just my public posts on Facebook. Now that is actually in your private sphere. Um, and that's another capability that the BPD wants as part of this program. One point that came up uh, frequently during this hearing that you and I keep mentioning uh, was Fitzgerald and I think uh, Carabin also saying, we are not going to circumvent established privacy settings on Facebook or Twitter unless we have a court order. And I had initially taken that to, to mean that they are not looking at software that would allow them to circumvent established privacy settings. But I ran out of the hearing after uh, they had testified and they were on their way out, and I, I was able to, to catch them for about 30 seconds to say, hey, am I getting this right? Is it that you're not looking at products that would allow you to circumvent privacy settings, and I, I had it wrong. They said, we don't know. We, we don't know if we would have that ability or not. And I, I think that that was sort of how they had tried to spin it during the hearing. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd have to, I haven't gone back and listened to my tape. Yeah, I mean, they certainly, I, I think what they were trying to communicate to the counselors is that this isn't about people's emails. This isn't about, yeah. you know, your direct messages. But again, if you have a total Facebook wall that, prohibits anyone who you're not directly friends with from seeing what you're doing on Facebook. And the Boston Police Department spends a lot of time cultivating a distinct, covert online personality to try to get you to let, let right. them in. Um, that is actually compromising your privacy. And is it possible, I'm getting down in the weeds here a little bit, is it possible that they might end up purchasing a product that allows them to circumvent your you know, lockdown Facebook privacy settings even if you don't accept a friend request from this totally, you know, too good to be true sending individual? Doubt it. Highly if doubt Facebook it. Facebook okay. and, and Twitter got caught doing that, they would be in a lot of trouble. Interesting. Yeah. I highly doubt it. But, you know, 
it's not just so so again if i was arguing with myself from the other side i yeah. would say now well you know the boston police department can already make fake facebook profiles and they do in fact a couple years ago they got caught doing this really ham-fisted embarrassing um, imitation of a punk trying to suss out where house parties in austin were going to be i mean it was just laughably bad but but they tried that and so we know that they already do that what this enables and this is really the whole problem i've heard people say I don't get it. They can already do this. You know, I even heard Commissioner Evans on the radio the other day saying, yeah, we already do this. This just makes it more efficient. That's the problem. That's the problem. We don't want it to be more efficient because when it's more efficient, it means that you don't have to focus only on people who are truly suspects of serious crimes. You can look at everybody. And so, you know, this covert profiles thing, it doesn't mean that you know, the one intelligence analyst who's trying to figure out what's going on with maybe um, a shooting that happened in Dorchester is going to create one fake covert profile as a part of a legitimate investigation. It means that this program will enable him to manage a hundred of those profiles very easily, um, which means, again, that instead of simply focusing on people who actually may truly be dangerous, we have this wide open dragnet surveillance capability happening, which means everybody else can get sucked in. How many other cities across the country are using tools like this right now? You know, we don't know for sure, but I've seen reports in national papers saying 500, um, something like that. And, you know, again, it's really shocking, frankly, how much money the Boston Police Department has allocated, at least in theory, to spend on this kind of thing in the future because big police departments, they haven't been spending close to $1.4 million on this type of technology. Hmm. Um for example, the Los Angeles Police Department, which, you know, is a significantly larger department than Boston, it um, covers a much larger much city. Much bigger city, yeah. Um, spent, I think, $70,000 over a three-year period, and the BPD's talking about spending $1.4 out the gate million. I mean, it's like... I, I, well, I we just, are a world-class city. So. <laughs> I'm sort of at a loss, honestly. I don't really understand what they're doing. It may very well be that they just have too much federal grant money. They don't know what to do with it. They, you know, somebody in this uh, private surveillance market pitched somebody a cool tool and said, you guys should really, you know, you need this. And there's just extra money laying around so that, you know, I really have no idea. So as of now, even though today, I think, as we stand here talking, this was the target date for committing to a particular product. My understanding is that they have not yet done that, right? That's certainly what they represented to the city council. Um, We are definitely at the ACLU going to be paying very close attention to this. And I already, last month, or rather at the end of October, filed a public records request asking for all of the submissions, the the bids um, that companies made in response to the RFP. And I was denied, and they told me that those records were confidential. Wait, wait, hold up, because I was looking at the RFP today, uh, trying to do a little, you know, rapid study before today's hearing in our conversation and it explicitly says in the rfp that all the bids submitted are subject to public records law that's right, right. yeah well there there's a contradictory statement in it too it oh. also says that the bids won't be public until they've chosen one so okay, it's a it. little bit of a catch-22 you know that was one that was another thing i was shaking my head about in frustration during the hearing is that i was hearing on the one hand the bpd say you know we're very transparent transparency is very important to us yada 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 and then on the other hand, saying, well, we don't know anything about these technologies. Well, we're not going to tell you anything about them. 
And we can't tell you anything about the technology that we're going to select until after we decide to buy it and ink the contract with the company. And, oh, sorry, by the way, that we can't escape from that contract. So it's like, you know, it would be really great if the Boston Police Department, instead of doing it that way, um, picked a contract that they like and then said to the city council and to the public, here's what we're thinking about buying. You know, this is the one that we like before inking the contract. Now let's have a conversation about it. Um, you know, it's really interesting you say that, and now we're getting uh, maybe a little far afield, but, or I'm getting a little far afield, but my sense of how community engagement has worked under the Walsh administration, and there, it may have been like this to an extent under um, Menino, I honestly don't remember, but I feel like the mayor is very bullish on the idea of community engagement after the outcome has already been determined. For example, with the Olympics or the Indy car races, we've decided we're going to do this, and now we're going to come to you where you are to explain why this is a, a good idea. Um, if he hears this, he may disagree. People, uh, you know, listeners may disagree with my assessment, but this this sounds like it fits that mo that I just described. Well, I mean, those two examples that you gave were examples of the community rising up, frankly, and saying no. You know, you may have already decided that this is what's going to happen, but that's not going to happen because <laughs> we think that's ridiculous. Um, and so even if what you've said is true about the Walsh administration's approach, which I actually have to say, I think on the question of body cameras, we had a different approach. And, and I think that happened because of Councillor Campbell, uh, on the who's the chair of the Committee on Public Safety for the City Council, who um, ran the hearing the other day. She made sure that there was an actual democratic process in terms of how the body camera policy was developed. They had hearings all over town, uh, public meetings, rather, where she invited people to come and speak, to say mm -hmm. what you think, not just about whether we should do this, but let's get specific. Let's actually talk about what this policy would look like and, you know, worked with the ACLU. So a lot of our recommendations are in that policy. We don't think it's a perfect policy by any means, but um, certainly a model like that would be preferable to the Olympics model. All right. Cade Crockford, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk through this. Thanks. I appreciate it. And that is going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. For the record, we did ask the Boston Police Department about Crockford's claim that key points were misrepresented by them in that city council hearing. So far, we haven't heard back. If and when we do, we'll post an addendum here. Thanks to Kate Crockford of the ACLU of Massachusetts for her thoughts on social media surveillance. And of course, thanks to you for taking the time to listen and for bearing with my rather scratchy throat. As always, you can find back episodes of The Scrum on iTunes, on various podcatchers, and online at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. Our producer is Jason Tereski. Our engineer is Doug Sugartz. I'm Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.